Lord Jesus Christ, you're the good shepherd. And you promise us that we are your sheep, that the sheep will hear your voice. And so we lay ourselves before you with expectation, knowing how desperate we are to hear a word from heaven. This is our prayer, that you would overcome the foolishness of preaching, that you would break open the hardness of our hearts and minds, that we might hear not from someone just standing in front of us, but from you, from our good shepherd, from the word through whom and for whom all things were made. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're in a sermon series called Promises. We're, we're looking at some great promises. And I want to remind you what St. Peter said. He said that God has given us his precious and very great promises. And you might ask, why? Why has God given us his precious and very great promises? Peter tells us that as well. He says, so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. That should blow your mind. These promises are given so that we might become like God. Not just so that we could have nice cross-stitching on the walls or moving greeting cards, but, but so that God could produce a change in our lives. So that God has somehow introduced his kind of life into our lives. And that's pretty cool. And so that's why we're working through these promises so we can really understand them, commit them to memory, and then live them. Hey, last week we looked at a promise for when we're lost. This week, today, we're gonna look at a promise about what we have lost. So let's open up our Bible to Joel chapter two, verse 25. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's page 741. If you brought your own book, that's thank you for that. You hit the New Testament and go left and you're gonna get to the minor prophets and uh, early in that set, you'll find the book of Joel. I, we are gonna put the words of the text on the screen because I'd like us all to be reading today from the English Standard Version, particularly favorite of mine in this verse. If you're able, would you stand? Let's read aloud. God's word, Joel chapter two, verse 25. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. The Lord says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. So here's the promise. I will restore you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I first learned the significance of this promise from a great mentor of mine. It's not that he talked about it a lot, but it just sort of seasoned his speech. It was one of those ready phrases at the tip of his tongue, particularly when he would pray. He'd pray, and I'd hear this, Lord, restore to him the years. Father, restore to her the years that the swarming locust has eaten. This man would pray as one who really knew the pain of loss. He, 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 I knew, had gone through a, a devastating divorce as a young man very early in his marriage. He, I knew, had gone through 30 years of very painful ministry. 
he, he I knew had walked with many through very traumatic grief and loss, many of whom didn't survive. And so as, as I listened to him pray, I, I knew there was kind of a gravitas associated with these words. I could feel it from him. He knew deep loss. But he never got lost in the loss, if you know what I mean. There was something about him. And when he spoke, it was though he was in conversation with one who knew loss, but who also could transform loss into even greater gain. And that's really the heart of this promise. The transformation of our loss into greater gain. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the Lord says, through Joel. Joel is a book really about loss. What God says to us when we experience loss. We call it the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, but because they're short, they're short books. And actually, Joel's very short. They're just three chapters. The structure is simple. There are two parts to it. As Doug Stewart puts it, there's present distress, part one, and there's future deliverance, part two. Present distress, future deliverance, loss, and greater gain. Now, immediately in the context, uh, what's happened is there's been a locust swarm. Not unusual, that time, that place. But this has been a very severe locust swarm. It's come through and it's absolutely ravaged, virtually destroyed the Israelite countryside and economy and way of life. Just catastrophic loss because of locusts. We don't get a lot of detail. There's not a lot of historical markers. We don't know exactly when Joel lived or what period he's writing about. And that's probably because Joel seems to be less interested in historical detail than he is in theological message. What he really comes to believe is that God has a message for us when we experience loss. And scholars today tell us that this text was likely written and used as a liturgical text, that is to say, in worship just has the character of a liturgical text which would suggest that God's intent through Joel was to provide something for his people that would address their loss generation after generation that we'd be able to hear this promise in our deep pain. He's writing for a people who at the time really felt like they've lost everything. Listen to how Joel puts it in chapter one. He says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. This is verse four. And then with the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And with the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is loss upon loss, right? This is just grief after grief. It must have felt like everything has just been gone. By the way, uh, here in verse 4, chapter 1, and the one we've been reading in chapter uh, 2, verse 25, the reference is probably not to different insects, but rather the life cycle of the same insect. Those of you who fly fish know the different stages of an insect. And this is probably what uh, was being referred to as the, the, the hopping or the destroying or the swarming locusts. In other words, there's an element of time in this. There, there are these stages. And what was lost during the first stage 
it goes away, but what is saved in the second stage also goes away. And what, what was spared during that second stage in the third stage goes away. That's why what's lost really isn't just crops. He doesn't say he'll restore to you the crops. He'll restore to you the years, the time. The years, of, as in not just the thing itself, but everything that you put into that thing during that time period. You know, like buying the land, breaking the soil, sowing the seed, watering, everything you put in, your toil, your sweat, your tears, your energy, the, the days and the months and the years. It's as though he's talking about whole seasons of your life and it might even be your life and your parents' life and that land and your children's life and that harvest and all around that, all just gone. All of it eaten, all of it lost. And then this strange promise. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. What have you lost? So often we don't really even know what to do with our loss. Do you remember the story Great Expectations? Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens invents this character named Miss Havisham. We meet her early in, in the story. Miss Havisham is locked in her loss. She does not know what to do with it. She's a wealthy young woman. And we meet her on her wedding day. It's 20 minutes before 9 o'clock in the morning. She's getting dressed for the great festival. Got her wedding dress on, she's got one shoe on, about to put the other shoe on, there's a knock at the door, and a letter comes from the bridegroom. He's not gonna go through with it. The wedding is off, all is lost. And she doesn't leave the house, she doesn't take the dress off, she leaves one shoe on and one shoe off. The time on her wrist and every other clock in this great house is set permanently to 20 minutes before nine o'clock because that's when she lost everything. Dickens says it was as if everything in the room and house had stopped. She didn't know what to do with her loss. Some of us recently took a course with a man named Pete Scazzaro in New York City. He's the author of a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And Pete Scazzaro's thesis is that your emotional health and that your spiritual health, they're linked. You cannot have one without the other. <laughs> this is not good news for many of us as we've been going through this crisis that's so taxed our emotional health. Here's what Pete Scazzaro says. He writes, when we deny our pain, deny our losses, deny our feelings, year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Right? And, and this is odd because loss is just part of life. As surely as one season follows the next, autumn follows spring and the green new life fades and shrivels and dies. It's part of life. We experience life the, uh, loss the moment we're born. We lose the security of the womb. That's why we cry as babies. A sibling loses a little bit of status when that next child is born into the family. It's loss. 
as we grow up and face various kinds of transitions, we, we, we lose. Even good transitions, there's this loss of familiarity, comfort, of security. We lose our youth someday, and no amount of surgery can change that. We lose uh, our illusions uh, about a job, or a relationship, or a marriage, or even a church. We lose our sense of self when we've identified it or linked it too closely with something that goes away. We lose our hopes and dreams one day. We all have experienced some form of tragedy, the loss of a loved one, perhaps infertility, maybe mental illness, or the loss of some physical capability. The question is, how do we deal with those losses? If we turn away from our grief, as Scazzaro says, we become like Miss Havisham, locked forever, and our health and our humanity are somehow diminished. I think this is hardest even for Christians. Yes, there is joy, and the joy is real, and we should always rejoice, but we experience loss just like everybody else, don't we? We do. Why is it that we feel like we've always gotta be happy? Everything is awesome, super excited, right? No, let's be honest about what hurts. Pete Scazzaro writes, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. (laughs) Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And catch this, and reality is where we meet God. We have to meet him in reality. That's where he lives. This is a challenging course for me. I'm doing another one this, this fall. He gives us a list of defense mechanisms, you know, common responses that that we use to try to avoid the pain of loss. They call them defense mechanisms. By the way, you need some defense mechanisms because life is hard, but when, when you use them constantly simply to avoid the reality of pain in your life, they can become problems. So, uh, he asks us to list our experiences of grief and loss at various stages in our lives and then to think about various defense mechanisms. Which ones did you use? to cope with that, or this one, or those. I want to share with you the list of defense mechanisms because maybe you'll look at those later and think about your own responses to to loss. Here's the list. Denial, minimizing, blaming others, blaming yourself, over-spiritualizing, rationalizing, meaning uh, making excuses, or intellectualizing, meaning keeping the whole thing kind of in your head. A lot of us who, who are thoughtful people live there. Uh, distracting, medicating, becoming hostile, slashing out in anger. They're all ways of ignoring the emotional reality that comes with loss. They're all ways of avoiding reality. And remember, to avoid reality is to avoid a God who says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So what what do we do? What should we do with our loss? Well, Joel answers this question. In the text, Joel himself offers us an alternative for facing loss, and it's this. One word, lamentation. Lamentation, which is to say to cry out in our loss to God to rage against God. You're like, what? Yeah, that's what he says. Lamentation. Joel is calling his readers to lament. Listen to what he says. Verse eight, chapter one. He says, lament like a virgin dressed in sackcloth 
for the husband of her youth. This is Havisham, by the way. Um, this is a lost marriage. Before it ever even began, there's that period in Jewish weddings between engagement and consummation. Somewhere in there, the groom dies or leaves. And Joel says, lament. We should lament like her. And and then he, he says, put on sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. Now he's speaking to the clergy. Come, pass the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Now he's talking about not lost marriage, but lost ministry. Priests, liturgists, lament, he says. And then he goes out from the temple and he sees the farmers and the vine dressers and the fields. And he calls them to lament. They've lost their crops, right? And then on the corner stool over there, they're the drunkards. He says, even those guys are supposed to lament. They don't have their wine anymore, right? And even the, the ground is mourning. And he says, come, come. Calls the whole village into the house of the Lord. And he says, even now, the Lord says, even now, return to me with all your heart. Here's the Lord speaking. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts. He's saying, lament, rage, live in the reality. Tell me about it. Talk to me about it. Give me your anger. Give me your dismay. Bring it to me. Lament. See, this is shocking for religious people. Like, is that okay? That's very disrespectful. <laughs> you know, we want to say, no, I mean, this is an honor culture. Yes, it is disrespectful. And so it's so surprising in counterculture that this God says, yeah, bring it. And we find the Bible is full of lamentation. Job, of course, laments. Jeremiah, rich lament in Jeremiah. David, King David, a man after God's heart. Boy, does he rage. Jesus himself laments. We have a book of lamentations. The Psalter is filled with lamentations. All this tells us, God's saying, I'm going to give you the words to say back to me when you find yourself in unthinkable, excruciating, disorienting, meaning-crushing loss. Let's talk about it. Lamentation. Lamentation allows a person, whoever does it, to hold two realities at the same time. On the one hand, the great promise that God is good and that he promises good. On the other hand, the reality that sometimes life is just unbearably, inexplicably hard. Lamentation allows us to hold both of those things together and neither one collapses into the other. See, they're both true. Lamentation does not resolve our losses, but it puts us in conversation with our God. Lamentation does not remove our pain, but it gives us the language to name the unspeakable. Lamentation doesn't explain our suffering, but it allows us to put it into the context of God's whole redemptive plan and a larger framework of meaning. Jerry Sitzer, who's a great professor at the University of Whitworth, He's written so powerfully and profoundly about his own experience of suffering. If you're young, you may not have heard the story. It happened years ago. In one single car accident, he lost his mother, his wife, and his young daughter. Can you? But what's amazing about what the Lord did through Jerry's life, he transformed that. Somehow, Jerry found that Jesus led him not to turn away from the pain, but to turn towards the pain, to towards the pain and towards God. 
And I, I just want you to hear some of these words. You might read his book, a, a Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. But here's what he says, just an excerpt from that. The quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, to go back, chasing after the setting sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until one comes to the sunrise. And that's true, isn't it? I love that image. He said, don't run from your pain. Don't avoid, don't hide, don't deny. Forget the defense mechanisms. You turn towards the darkness. The sooner you hit that darkness, the sooner you hit the sunrise. And he's talking about Jesus. The practice of plunging into the darkness with God is lament. That's, That's what Joel is inviting his readers to. That's what he's calling ancient Israel to in the context of a catastrophic loss caused by locusts. Not avoiding the pain, but plunging into the darkness, as Jerry Sitzer says. Because here in the darkness is where you're going to meet your God. It's where you're going to meet the one who makes this promise to you. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Essentially what the Lord is saying to Israel through Joel is, you can trust me with your loss. You can trust me with what hurts. You can trust me. Let's look at the language for just a second in this promise. That phrase, I will restore, the the Hebrew there, it's a verb, but it's the verb that comes from a Hebrew word I bet you already know. Some of you will know this word, shalom. Shalom. It's the, probably the richest word in Hebrew. It means peace, wholeness, restoration. This is the verb form of that. I will restore. Shalmati is how the Hebrew goes. And the word can be translated when it's a verb as repay, like when someone pays off a debt. It can be translated make peace as when two kings sign a treaty. It can be translated complete or finish. That's interesting. As when Solomon finishes building the temple. See, the Lord is saying that loss, you know, the plants, the food, the resources, the economy, the welfare, the celebration that you would expect with the harvest and the years themselves, that loss, I will repay. I will restore. I will make you whole. I will turn it into gain. You will one day receive the fullness, the completion of all that was lost. It will come back to you in shalom, peace. Wow, this is an amazing promise. You can trust me with your loss. We get a glimpse of this, by the way, at the end of Job. You know Job, he loses everything very quickly. Most of us lose it over a period of time. Job, all at once. Then he rages against the dark. And then there's this little uh, epilogue at the end, right? One little paragraph. And it's this description of restoration. Many of us don't ever even get there. But it's a beautiful little picture. It says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. By the way, that's a fulfillment of the law in Exodus. Restoration double, twofold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He, remember how blessed he was at the beginning? More, double at the end. Now, this is not to say that he got over the loss. He got over it. No. It's not to say that the, the pain just went away. No. 
He could never replace the family that he lost, the people and the things. They were, those could never come back as such. But God could and did bring to him restoration, wholeness, shalom. See, the point is, he had done the work of grief. He had dove into the darkness. After 30 chapters of lament, why? Raging against the Lord. He's now ready for a new life. He's now open to a new life. He, he can actually move on. There's a freedom now in Job's life. It allows God to bless him in another season. This is the restoration we see. By the way, Jesus promises you to do the same. There's this moment in the Gospels where the disciples are caught up in a sense of loss. We've just talked to the rich young ruler. He's like, what? Give everything away? And they say, well, look, we've left everything and followed you. This is Mark 10, 28. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, truly, I tell you, there is no one, not one, who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, fields, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life, a hundredfold. You can trust me with your loss. Actually, we have to trust him with our loss. This is something we have to know if we're ever gonna follow Jesus. If we're ever gonna actually take any kind of risk in life, we have to know him, that we can trust him with loss because we're gonna have to be willing to face loss because it's just part of life. It's certainly part of discipleship. This Lord is eager to empty us out in order to fill us up. Maybe you noticed when we read that verse earlier that Joel said, the Lord says, oh, by the way, I'm the one who sent the locusts. <laughs> now, God doesn't usually send adversity into our lives. But as the writer of Hebrews says, he disciplines those whom he loves. And it seems like that's what he was doing to ancient Israel. He's saying, I'm going to empty you out in order to fill you up. Would you give me your old, tired ways? Will you give me your all-too-small dreams? Will you give me your unworthy attachments? I stand ready to pour my Holy Spirit on you. I stand ready to direct and empower you. By the way, it's Joel 2 that comes to Peter's mind on Pentecost. But for you to be full, to be filled, you have first to become empty. Yes, I give and I take away, and that's really good but it does entail loss. Following Jesus means loss. Take up your cross, he says. And it's gonna happen. If we're gonna follow Jesus genuinely in our own day, get, get ready. There are gonna be costs associated with declaring good news in Jesus. There's gonna be a cost associated with loving your neighbors, even your enemies, to be caring for the poor, to pursue holiness, to be agents of reconciliation in the midst of conflict. This is not gonna come easy. What it's gonna require is that people who know what to do with their loss, who have the courage, therefore, and the freedom to face loss. We need this promise. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So what I'm saying is that that's a promise that first struck me in the prayers of my mentor. But it has stayed with me over the years. And I find myself praying it too. I pray it like, with a guy who, who was dating a woman he loves for 10 years. And any one of those 10 years, he would look you in the eye and tell you, next year we're gonna be married. 
but he's proposed and he's proposed and proposed and on the 10th year, she breaks off the relationship for good. He's thinking, that's 10 years of my life. I pray with an entrepreneur who is pushed out of her own business. She built it from scratch. She invested everything she had in the business and then through some kind of bizarre conspiracy, her partner and the board one day push her out completely. That's 15 years of my life. I can't get them back. I, I pray this prayer with defeated athletes, with bankrupt investors, grieving parents, with the racially marginalized, with singles struggling to be faithful, with recovering addicts, with betrayed leaders, with regretful retirees, I pray this prayer. And I know on one level what was lost will never ever come back. I know that and they do too. But I also know that what has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ can never be lost. Never be lost. God wastes nothing. The thing itself may be gone. But the work, the love, the learning, the memories, the experience, even somehow the hurt itself will never be lost. It will be redeemed, repurposed, transformed, restored, and resurrected. Yes, resurrected. That's the thing about resurrection. It's the other side of loss, isn't it? Can't have resurrection without loss. This is the point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, it's what is sown that is raised. It's what has died that is raised. And this is what's distinct about Christianity and Jesus. There are a lot of philosophies and religions that will offer some kind of compensation or reward for loss. But Jesus, you don't just get a substitute for your loss. You get the thing back. You get it back itself in a new form. Like think just for a moment about resurrection. We get our bodies back but not just the bodies we lost, this one, thank, thankfully. We get back whole bodies. We get back perfect bodies. We get back complete bodies. Shalom, right? We get back the bodies we never had, but we wish we had, bodies beyond our imagination. So to our lives, we get our lives back, but not the, just the lives that we lived. No, now too we get whole lives, perfect lives, complete and finished lives. The lives we lived and the lives we never got to live, but wish we could. Lives beyond our imagination come back. Sown perishable, raised imperishable, Paul says. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. I don't know what you've lost, but I do know this. For you who trust God with that loss, who turn toward the darkness, this is the sunrise. This is the sunrise. In this life and in the next. I will restore to you what the swarming locust has eaten. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your tenderness. Thank you for revealing yourself as the father of mercies, the God of all compassion. I, I know as a preacher, I'm very aware of the pain that a text like this surfaces in many of our lives. Would you help us not to run from that pain in this moment, but to bring it into the sanctuary, the safety of this space, to bring the pain and lay it at the feet of the foot of the cross?
I, I want to pr- pray for you this prayer that my mentor prayed, prayed for me and others. And so if, you, if you're in a place where you're aware of particular loss in your life, and you want to claim this promise for that loss, I'm going to invite you, please stand. Don't be embarrassed. I'm standing in my loss. There'll be others around you who are standing. Go ahead and stand. Just say, I've lost. And to say, but I'm going to stand on the promise of God in this moment. Stand so he sees that, so that he sees your faith enacted in the way that you're responding to this promise. Yeah, I see you standing. He sees you standing. The loss is real, but so is his promise. It's even more real. So, friends, let's, let's pray for these brothers and sisters. Father, restore them the years. Restore to them the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Lord, we don't understand how you do it. We can't even imagine what it would be like. But we've come looking at the cross, beholding the empty tomb, hearing the angels say, why do you look for the living among the dead? We come convinced that you can be trusted even with this. So those of us who are standing and or rising and or opening our hands, we're just, we're just here to give you all that pain. We don't know what else to do with it. It's killing us to hold it, so we give it to you. And we ask you to redeem it for something good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.